0: We have begun a study in the book of Revelation, and we've done several messages from the book itself. And then we stepped back last week for just a moment to answer some questions about the structure of the book. And today I want to do another lesson which is going to help us, I think, in regards to the timing or the time frame. You know? <laughs> as we think about what we call eschatology, it's a big word that we use to refer to end times events or the things that will happen in the last days, we need to realize, one, that throughout the history of the church, there have been differing opinions that are within (coughs) Christian orthodoxy that are still held by believers And we don't say, oh, you're a heretic, you're outside the faith because you have a slight difference of opinion with me on these things. When it comes down to it, the scriptures are resoundingly clear and believers through the ages have held to several key truths in regards to the latter things, eschatology. One, very clearly, the scriptures affirm resoundingly teach that we must believe in a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended into heaven, as recorded at the beginning of the book of Acts, the angels reported to the disciples that he would come again as he had left. So Jesus will come back bodily to this earth. There will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the lost and of the saved. There will be a judgment. There will be the eternal state. Those who are lost will suffer eternal conscious torment. Apart from the blessings of God, those who are saved will live with the Lord forever in righteousness and in glory. These things are essential. And then today we turn to some things that are not quite as essential, but I believe are important for us to understand. Now, the basic... Proposition I want to present to us today, and we're going to look at this from the Scriptures, is that to discover the timeline or time frame in regards to the return of Christ, what happens before, what happens after, we don't need to turn to Revelation or Daniel in the least. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures very clearly present some of the most basic things about eschatology in the Gospels and in the epistles. And, as we step back and think about this for just a moment, we need to make sure that we're practicing good rules of biblical interpretation. Some of those rules of interpretation are things such as, If we have passages of scripture that speak to a subject and some of those are highly figurative and others of those are not figurative, but they're didactic or teaching in nature, that we should look to those teaching passages to help us interpret the figurative passage passages. Because by its very nature, figurative passages are harder to interpret or understand when they contain figures of speech, metaphors, etc. So we look to the non-figurative passages to help us understand the figurative passages. We look to those passages that are clear and directly teaching about a subject to help us understand those that are a little bit less clear or a little bit less direct. Now, I've been making the case from the very beginning that the book of Revelation is a book of symbolism. It's a book of images. It's a book filled, literally chock full with figurative language. Therefore, it has been one of the most difficult for people to interpret of all of the Bible. So, I want to make a case today that to understand the timeline of human history, we don't have to look at the book of Revelation at all. That it could be established in other passages, and those passages will help us then to interpret the book of Revelation and passages like Daniel in the latter chapters in Daniel. Usually when people look at eschatology, where do they go? Revelation and Daniel. I'm saying that's not the place to start. And so we're going to start with some basic propositions supported in the scriptures to help us understand the timeline As we do this, and I recommend to you this book, Sam Waldron wrote a book called The End Times Made Simple. I've I've referenced it before. At first, when I read the title of this book, I thought, that is audacious. (laughs) The End Times Made Simple? I mean, The End Times is complex. Everybody's disagreeing about it, etc., etc. But you know what? He convinced me of a very simple view as supported in the scriptures that gives the very Basic timeline and then of course as we get more complex fitting all the details in it gets a little more difficult to understand from there but i'm going to draw from this book at several different points as we consider from the scriptures this study today we're going to look at a lot of different passages of scripture what i think is helpful for us to understand first of all and we'll we'll look at this in three different propositions that are presented to us here, is that the Bible uses the terminology of this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. If you're thinking about a timeline and you're thinking about all of human existence and human history from the very creation of the first human beings into the eternal state where human beings will live on forever into eternity. The most basic timeline presented in the scriptures is the timeline of two ages, not seven, not 21, not any other. The most basic timeline is two ages. This age and the age to come. And the Bible teaches that this age and the age to come exhaust all of human history. All of human history. So let's look at some passages of Scripture which speak about these ages. This age and the age to come and use this type of terminology. It's not that this is just mentioned in one or two obscure passages in scripture this terminology this age and the age to come is mentioned explicitly 18 times in the new testament and then there are other places where it's referenced or alluded to that doesn't use that specific language so consider and i'm going to fly through a few of these you may not have time to turn to every one of them but i will turn us to several key passages as we go through our message today Matthew chapter 12 in verse 32. In this passage, Jesus is dealing with the issue of the unpardonable sin. We're not going to focus on that because we're looking at the terminology he uses of this age and the age to come. And we're going to look at a parallel passage in Mark chapter 3. But in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Now, you see the terminology there. This age or in the age to come. Now, in the Gospels, we have many parallel passages where the same teachings are presented sometimes with a little more detail or a little less detail or slightly different wording, depending on the context. In Mark chapter 3, verse 29, we have a parallel passage, this exact same teaching of Jesus, and it says here, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now notice that. Jesus says, guilty in this age and in the age to come. Never forgiven. This age or the age to come. And then likewise, he says that that is an eternal sin. So that means this age and the age to come exhaust all of the history of that person's sinfulness. They sin at this point in time and they will never be forgiven. So that means there is not... An age to come, and then an age to come after that, and an age to come after that. You see, there is this age and the age to come. These two ages, it's an eternal sin, an everlasting sin. Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. Peter says to Jesus, we've given up much for you. And Jesus responds... And says this, and we jump in. But that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, this age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You notice that terminology again. In the present age and in the age to come. Two ages. Remember what we looked at in Matthew and Mark? Eternal, everlasting, two ages, two ages. Luke 16 in verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Notice that terminology, this age. Okay? Okay. Luke 18, 30, a parallel passage with the Mark 10 passage we read. Who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life? This time here is mentioning or referring to this age and then in the age to come eternal life. Two different ages this age and the age to come. Luke chapter 20, 34 through 36, and we're going to come back to Luke chapter 20 in a moment. Sam Waldron has said this that he tells people that he primarily gets his eschatology regarding the millennium etc from Luke chapter 20 rather than Revelation chapter 20 So here we have clear clear teaching of Jesus regarding these end time things okay so let's let's put this together let's put these pieces together Luke chapter 20, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they're like the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. You see there, clearly two different ages, this age and The age to come. And what's included in this age? Things such as marriage. Now how long have we had marriage? We've had marriage ever since the Garden of Eden. So I'm going to make the case that this age includes all of human history from the very creation of Adam and Eve up until the the age to come begins. And we're going to talk in a minute about when that is. But you see this terminology, this age and the age to come, two ages, all right? This is the most basic, fundamental timeline of eschatology in the scriptures, two ages, this age and the age to come. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're familiar with this, but we need to uh, realize as, as we're thinking about this, the word, the word age there it's, as it's translated, and sometimes it's translated world, in Greek is the word ion. You know, we'll talk about eons and eons of time, etc., etc. It's the word ion or eon. And the Greek word eon refers to time, but it also refers to space or location. It refers to time and location. So when we talk about this age and the age to come, it could be even hyphenated as this world age this world age, or the age to come. I think one of the things that shows us that this is talking about uh, not only time, but also location, is that it's spoken of in the scriptures that this age is an evil age. But is there evil in heaven? In God's presence? No. So the evil is located In a specific realm. It's not that this age everywhere is evil. But it's in a specific place. So it's referring to a world age. It's spatial as well as being uh, a time indicator. The word eon... Our word that we've been seeing translated as age is in Romans chapter 2. And it says this, do not be conformed to this world. That's our word. Don't be conformed to this age. This world age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're, we're told don't be molded into the shape of this world age. What's the implication there? And it says it clearly in Galatians that this is an evil age. It's an evil age. If it's not an evil age, then we wouldn't be told don't be conformed to it. (laughs) We're being told don't conform to it. So it's an evil age. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, those that are proponents of this age are those that are considered foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 And verse 8. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. See, this age doesn't last forever. It's passing away. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So this age is passing away. It will end and we will enter into the age to come, right? Which we've seen Jesus use that terminology, this age and the age to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, In whose case the God of this world, there's our word again, this world age, the God of this world age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Waldron says this, the God of this age is Satan, clearly in this passage. The darkness of this age is contrasted with the light of the age to come, the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's this stark contrast between these two ages, this age and the age to come. Galatians one and verse four, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and father. So again, this age is called an evil age, and this is the age in which we live. Ephesians one, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There you see the terminology of the two ages mentioned once again. Christ is king already and will be forever. In this age and in the age to come. Ephesians 2 and verse 2. You see this isn't an isolated incident in scripture. This is a key concept in scripture. In which you formally walked according to the course of this world. There's our word again. This world age. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Waldron says, Walking according to this age of this world is descriptive of the way of life dominated by the prince of the power of the air and the lust of the flesh and characteristic of the children of wrath. First Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present, here's our word again, world age, eon, who are rich in this present age, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You see, contrasted with this present age, and then, that which is life indeed for the future. That would be referring to the age to come. Titus 2 verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This age. Hebrews 6 verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. There were some who had experienced miracles at that time, and it said that they had tasted the powers of the age which was to come. Remember, Jesus broke it into two ages, this age and the age to come. So, you see here that this isn't an isolated passage of Scripture, or a concept in Scripture. It's divided into two ages, specifically. Now, what some might... Recognize and point out rightly is that there are passages of scripture which mention plural ages, and it'll say ages in regards to the past or ages in regard to the future. So, in one such passage, if you look to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10 11, it says now all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come so there it uses the plural ages and there are a couple other passages that do so so here's here's what we see remember what we began with the broadest timeline in scripture is that all of human history can be divided into two ages, this age and the age to come. The Bible does say that there are lesser ages that are contained within those two ages. But the Bible does not define those ages for us. It doesn't give boundaries and say this is when this one began and this is when this one ends within these two main ages. And the focus in the scriptures is not on those lesser ages within the two ages. The primary focus is this age and the age to come. And that's the dividing line. Okay. So one of the ways that it's helpful to me to look at this is. Have you seen those little dolls? They're called nesting dolls. And you open up one, and then there'll be another inside, and then another one inside that, and another one inside that. You've got two of those, this age and the age to come. And within those, there are lesser little dolls, these lesser ages. But the scriptures don't define those, and they don't give boundaries to those. They don't say One of those started here and it ended there and it started here and it ended there. It it doesn't clearly outline those. The focus of Scripture is not specifically on doing that. So we can step back and say the biggest, broadest timeline. Really simple, right? Line, chunk, right there. One line across it. This age, the age to come. Okay? So the first proposition is that This age and the age to come taken together exhaust all time, including the endless time of the eternal state. Again, this age and the age to come taken together exhaust all time, including the endless time of the eternal state. Number two. We're putting these together, these three different propositions, and these are giving us the the nuts and bolts, bare bones, the structure, the skeleton of biblical eschatology. Okay? We don't even have to go to the book of Revelation to get it. This age and the age to come. Proposition number two, and I quote from Waldron, this age and the age to come are qualitatively different states of human existence and qualitatively different periods in the history of the world. Okay, I'll read that again. This age and the age to come are qualitatively different states of human existence and qualitatively different periods in the history of the world. What do we mean by qualitatively different? Let's go back to Luke chapter 20. Again, you you want one of the clearest passages that help us with our eschatology, Luke chapter 20. Now, obviously, we need to know how Revelation chapter 20 fits in with all of this, and we'll be going through the book of Revelation, so we'll take a look at this. But it's going to be helpful for us, I think. It'll be helpful for you, even if you don't end up agreeing with me on all all points or details. It's going to be helpful to you to realize how we're approaching this as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Luke chapter 20. And... Begin with verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her his wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died. Also, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Okay, so get the picture here. First of all, these Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection, so they're just putting a trick question out there trying to trap Jesus about his view of the resurrection. And they're like, if all of these seven guys were married to her during this life in the resurrection who's she going to be married to you answer me that jesus they're trying to say this idea of the resurrection is just absurd you've got an absurd idea and they're trying to blow his idea of the resurrection out of the water by presenting this scenario now does that stall jesus does he like oh boy that's i, mm, I uh, mm, uh, mm, mm. oh give me a minute with my father no nothing like that right what do we see what does he say Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Notice this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they're equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, but after that they dared not question him anymore. I just, I had to read that. I love it when Jesus shuts them up. (laughs) They come to him with all these big trick questions and he just blows them out of the water. I love that. But notice this: two ages, qualitatively different. Is there marriage in the age to come? No, no. I remember, I remember as a kid staying with a family in a different state for a short period of time, and there was a pastor's wife sitting at the dinner table, and I'm, I'm, a, you know, 14 years old, I think. Pastor's wife sitting at the dinner table and talking with the family around the dinner table, and she says. I hope that if I die before my husband dies, that he doesn't remarry because I just don't think I could stand being in heaven and seeing him there with another woman. And I remember scratching my head as a 14-year-old saying, your theology is all off. <laughs> you know, you're not, he's not going to be married to another woman, and you're not going to be married to him. Marriage is only in this age. These are qualitatively different ages. There is no marriage in the age to come. What else is not in the age to come? Death. There is no death in the age to come. So when we put together these teachings in scripture, the Bible divides all of human existence into two ages, this age and the age to come. These ages are qualitatively different and they're different in time. You don't have this age and the age to come at the same time in Scripture. They are (laughs) divided from one another. And they are different qualitatively. In this age, you have death. You have sin. You have marriage. Now, interesting, those three together, death, sin, and marriage. But that's what the Bible teaches. Death, sin, marriage. Marriage in this age. In the age to come, you don't have death. There is no longer any sin amongst those resurrected to glory. Because there's a separation, a complete separation of sinfulness from God. Okay? And you have uh, these two things. Now, no, notice this while we're in Luke chapter 2. It, it begins to give us a hint here about... What divides these two ages? Because this is where this is where some of the debate comes in. Depending on what camp of eschatology someone is in, it's in the question of, okay, clearly you know, Bible says this age and the age to come, but where's the dividing point there? When does the age to come begin? When do we move into a new age? And then two. You notice I mentioned that some passages say ages, and so there are these lesser ages. And they say, well, is there a lesser age that begins the age to come? and, And we've moved out of this age, but we're just in a lesser age of the age to come, and then we have another after that? Or how does all this fit together? This is where some of the debate comes in. But notice here what Jesus says, The sons of this age marry and are married and are given in marriage. Characteristic of this age. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age. And then he gives a a clarifying statement and connects something to the age to come. And the resurrection. Notice that. And the resurrection. This is giving us a bit of a hint that... The resurrection is going to be in which age? Is the resurrection in this age? or the age? No, the resurrection is going to be in the age to come. In the age to come. Okay? So, these two ages, again, second proposition, are qualitatively different. And they are distinguished in time. Let's look over at another teaching of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13. We have the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and then we have Jesus very kindly explaining this to us. Matthew chapter 13. And in verse 24... says this Matthew thirteen, twenty four. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Tares are weeds, okay? Wheat in the weeds. And he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the weeds, the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares or weeds? He said to them, An enemy has this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares or the weeds, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, then gather the wheat into my barn. Now Jesus explains this parable to his disciples if we jump down to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parables of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, believers, Christians. But the tares or weeds are the sons of the wicked one, unbelievers, the ungodly, non Christians. (laughs) The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. It's the end of this age that the harvest takes place, and then the beginning of the next age. The end of this age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares, the weeds, are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you see the terminology, this age and the age to come. Jesus says here that this reaping or gathering, it's at the end of the one age and the beginning of the other age that this takes place. So these ages are qualitatively different. What are some things that are displayed in this parable that Jesus mentions? Notice, the question is asked of the farmer. Well, should we, what should we do? Should we go in and rip out the weeds right now? But what is the response? And this is God's response. No, let them grow together until the harvest takes place. What's that indicating? There will always be wicked, and righteous living together on the earth until the Lord comes back. So these ages are qualitatively different. So, two propositions so far. One, the Bible divides all of human history into two ages, this age and the age to come. Two, these are qualitatively different ages number three then this age and the age to come are divided by the judgment of the wicked and the resurrection of the righteous which end this age and then inaugurate the age to come the dividing point is the return of christ at the return of christ the judgment takes place after the resurrection of the dead at that time and that all happens at one time. Now, we're going to look at some scriptures that teach this regarding the judgment. I want to pause here for just a second though. You see when we put all this together, there's there's a great simplicity to this. There really is a simplicity to it. We're not looking at multiple different resurrections of the dead. We're not looking at multiple different judgments with different functions. We're not looking at multiple different ages and different events. The timeline that the scriptures present, in my opinion, is a very simple timeline. This age and the age to come. Dividing point, Christ comes back one time. (laughs) The resurrection happens one time. The judgment happens one time. And there's a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. You see, in in that sense, this is the simplest of understandings of eschatology. And there are other systems which are very, very, very complicated and very hard to sort out. But I think that if we step back and we look at the clear teachings of Scripture, we look at the prose passages, not the figurative passages, that God gives us this timeline, and then we can work our way to places like the book of Revelation. Well, let's consider this third proposition in a little more detail. This age and the age to come divided by the judgment of the wicked, the resurrection of the righteous, which end this age and inaugurates the age to come. Waldron says, this massive support exists for this proposition in the New Testament. A sampling of it is as follows. First, and we've seen this in Luke chapter twenty thirty-five, he says it teaches that attaining to that age, the age to come, is equivalent to attaining to the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection is the door out of this age and into the age to come. When, however, he asked, does the resurrection occur? And he says this, and I believe this is accurate. The resurrection occurs according to the uniform and repeated teaching of the New Testament at Christ's return. When we look at the when we look at the passages in the Bible speaking of the resurrection, the Bible uniformly and repeatedly teaches that the resurrection happens when Christ comes back. When Christ comes back. And when he comes back one time, Okay, Um, again, I I know that there's disagreement about this. This is within the Christian camp. If you don't end up agreeing with what I'm presenting here, that's okay. We're within the Christian camp on some of these matters, all right? Now, just don't go denying that Jesus is ever going to come back or say that, no, he came back a long time ago and he's never coming back again or anything like that. Then we're going to have issues, all right? (laughs) But... Just being frank, as I examine scripture, I don't see anywhere supported in the Bible the idea that Jesus is going to come back a couple more times. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures that teaches that Jesus is going to come back in a secret coming where he will not bodily return to the earth and he'll remove believers out and then after seven years or so he's going to come back in a bodily return. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. The uniform teaching of Scripture is Jesus comes back, there's the resurrection of the dead, there's the judgment. Now let's look at some passages which speak to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 15. Put a 1 in there. This is the passage that deals in great detail with the resurrection from the dead. The issue of resurrection. Now let's begin with verse 20. Again, the the point that we're wanting to, to see that the scriptures makes is that. At Christ's coming, the resurrection takes place. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in an Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterwards, notice this. Those who are Christ's, when? When? At his coming. Then comes the end. <laughs> when does the resurrection of Christ's people take place? At his coming. A clear, direct statement of Scripture in a non figurative passage of Scripture, but a teaching passage. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. When will this enemy be destroyed? It will be destroyed at his coming, and the resurrection of the dead will take place. One resurrection. When? At his coming. What begins then? The age to come. A very simple and clear timeline in Scripture. Now jump down to verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? When? This is talking about the resurrection and is saying all of us who have died when will this happen At the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed Now when does that trumpet sound First Thessalonians in chapter 4 But notice this what happens? It says all of us will be changed, will be resurrected when? At the last trumpet. When does that happen? Previous verses in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection at the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, do we see any of this spoken of? Begin with verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep If anybody's sleeping in here, you wouldn't be able to hear me say this anyway, but that's not what it's talking about, all right? It's talking about those who have died. It's a euphemism, a figure of speech for death. We we usually this is a complete side note, but we usually don't just say of people, they died. We say something like they passed away or they went on to be home with the Lord, or you know, something like that. Because death is such a harsh reality, we usually soften it with human terms. And there's a precedent for that in some places in Scripture. Fallen asleep. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, what's in question, or what's in discussion here, the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. There's the trumpet. When does this happen? At Christ's coming. What takes place then? The resurrection. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What happens when Jesus comes back? The resurrection takes place. Multiple resurrections? No. All the dead in Christ are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uniform teaching of Scripture is that there's a single judgment, there's a single return of Christ bodily. That will take place, and we call this his second coming as compared to when he came and was born as as a child and lived on this earth. Resurrection of the dead at that time, judgment, eternal state. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus speaking about the judgment. begin with verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. Jesus is going to talk about two hours and he's saying this first one is coming and it's here, it's dawned. And what takes place in this hour, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, as Jesus is saying, right here, right now, the resurrection of the dead is taking place. He explains what he's talking about. He's speaking figuratively about spiritually dead people being made spiritually alive, not the bodily resurrection. Because notice, he goes on. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which how many in the graves? The hour is coming in which. All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, does Jesus saying the hours are coming when there are going to be multiple resurrections from the dead of the righteous? No, he says the hour singular is coming when all the dead, whether they're saved or lost, will be raised. And when does that happen? Based on the scriptures we looked at it in In um, Matthew chapter 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that happens when Jesus returns. It's it's very simple. (laughs) When it comes down to it, it, it's very simple. This age, and the age to come. Qualitatively different periods of time. You've got death, and marriage, and... And sin in this age. And that will not be in the age to come. What divides these two ages? Jesus comes back bodily to earth. He comes back one time. And there is the resurrection of the dead. And the judgment. And the eternal state. Very simple eschatology. But Sam Waldron says eschatology made simple. Now. We have a precedent in scripture here in John chapter 5 for people being raised to life being speaking about spiritual life because Jesus said the hour is here now when the dead are hearing the voice of the Son of Man and they are living. So he's clearly talking about spiritual life at that time. Revelation chapter 20 speaks about two resurrections and that's the passage that some will look to and those who are in the premillennial camp no matter what flavor of premillennialism meaning the belief that Jesus will come back pre a thousand year reign and they'll look at that that passage and say well it mentions two different resurrections and I simply present this, that we've already looked at multiple passages that are very clear in non-figurative books of the Bible, in clear didactic prose, straightforward language teaching. And we even have a precedent in the teaching of Jesus for resurrection being spoken of as spiritual resurrection not just physical resurrection. So, my thinking is develop the eschatology with this clear and simple time frame, and then we see that Revelation 20 does not conflict or contradict at all, but it fits perfectly in within this. But where do you start? Do you start with the more difficult, establish your framework, and then turn to the more clear and the simpler to understand? No. You see, you see how this works. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I have a book called uh, The Millennium, Four Different Views, and it presents the four historical positions on the millennium side by side by uh, very able biblical scholars. And then they present their view, each of the four, and then each of the other three will do a rebuttal of their opponents' views. And so it's fun to read because you see it all lined up side by side. It's fascinating to me that George Eldon Ladd, very notable biblical scholar, who took the <laughs> historical premillennial view, George Eldon Ladd, this great scholar, says there is one passage in Scripture alone which teaches the millennium, and that's Revelation 20. And he's the one that holds the passage of pre or he holds to premillennialism. If he could if he could find multiple other passages in Scripture that held to premillennialism, it would strengthen his case. But he's saying no, there is one passage in Scripture, Revelation twenty. That's fascinating to me. And this guy's a a solid and a you know very sound biblical scholar when it comes down to it. But he's saying. When it comes down to it, this is the only passage in scripture, Revelation 20, that we can say without controversy supports premillennialism. So all the other passages that people have taken to that speak about the the kingdom of God, like from the Old Testament or whatnot, what George Eldon Ladd points out, and I agree with him here, and I know I'm getting a little bit deeper here a little more complex at this point, but uh, this will be interesting for some of you. What George Eldon Lab says about those other passages, he says, when we look to these multiple Old Testament passages, and then we look at the passages that are clearly interpreted for us by the New Testament writers, we see multiple passages of Scripture that if you just looked at the Old Testament... <clears throat> you might think solely referred to something like a physical earthly kingdom or only the Jews being the recipients of this promise. But when you look to the New Testament, the New Testament writers clearly and emphatically give an interpretation of this based on the Christ event, Christ first coming. So for instance, what happened? Jesus comes to earth and the Jews try and make him a king. Why? Because they have the view that when the Messiah comes he's setting up a messianic kingdom on the earth and he's going to reign on the earth. So they try and make him a king. But what does Jesus do? He says, no. My kingdom is not of this world. And he doesn't let him make him a king. You look to Old Testament passages such as the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah after those days. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 10 and it says the new covenant is in effect because Christ has established it. And it quotes specifically that promise, but then it applies it to all believers, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. (laughs) Now, some will make an accusation and say, oh, well, you know, Ryan, you and those who hold positions like you, you're spiritualizing the text. You can't spiritualize the text. I'm saying, well, I'm just trying to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. He's the one, you know, Paul and whoever the writer of Hebrews was and, you know, these other New Testament writers, they're the ones who did it, not me. I'm just reading what they say is the proper interpretation of these passages. So, the reality is, and I'll wrap up this little side note. What George Alden Ladd is pointing out is he's saying, because the New Testament gives us a precedent of seeing passages referring to the kingdom, seeing passages of referring to um, spiritual Israel and then interpreting this as spiritual Israel and interpreting these as happening at the first coming of Christ in many respects and details, He said we can't look at those Old Testament passages and emphatically say this is referring to a future, to us, kingdom. And he's a premillennialist. It would support his case if he could. (laughs) And so what he's ultimately saying is, I've got one passage to stand on. That's Revelation chapter 20. But I want to very humbly propose this that we have looked at a very clear timeline from these very clear passages of Scripture. If if you're a premillennialist of whatever form, again, believing that Christ is going to come back before a literal kingdom on the earth, and then at the end of that kingdom is when the final judgment will take place in the new heavens and new earth, Okay, it doesn't matter what flavor of premillennialism that you hold to, then you have to believe, based on looking at passages like Revelation 20, that there will be both resurrected people who will never die and never sin again, as well as wicked evil people who will die living at the same time, in the same place, on the earth. Now, my question is, how can that fit in the two-age timeline that we just examined? You, you You can't put those together. You can't put those together. What happens when Jesus returns? The resurrection takes place. What happens immediately after the resurrection? The judgment. What happens to all those who are wicked and lost? They are cast into the lake of fire. What happens to the righteous? They live with God in glory for all eternity. They do not live together in a millennial kingdom on the earth where some are dying and some can never die, where some are sinning and some can never sin. You see, what happens with premillennialism is you can't fit the millennium into this age or the age to come. Those two are so distinct from one another, you have to make up another age in essence, or you have to rework the teaching of the two ages so that it's permitted in an age to come that there be sin and no sin, that there be resurrected people and those who will die, that there'll be marriage and no more marriage. So what I would again humbly propose is that this system, and just so you know, so you're forewarned, <laughs> that if you're going to agree with what I've presented from the Scriptures here, you can't be a premillennialist in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't fit. But again, my question is simply this. We've looked at how many passages of Scripture in support of these three propositions? 30, 40 different passages of Scripture? Were these from Revelation and Daniel? With highly figurative language? No. Plain, simple, straightforward teaching. It's, it's easier for me as a simple minded person to wrap my mind around that than to place all of my weight of my eschatological system on one passage in the book of Revelation, which is what I think I would have to do if I were going to be a premillennialist. Now, again, again, this is within the Christian camp. Again, there are men who are far more brilliant than I, who are premillennialists, but then there are men who are very brilliant, who are amillennialists and postmillennialists, who uh, differ with the premillennialists, okay? So, it doesn't stand or fall on my intelligence or your intelligence, praise the Lord, it is what it is. And somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And it is worth examining. One of the the things that I find encouraging about this is that we don't have to make it super complicated. You know, there are complicated passages of Scripture that are more difficult to understand than others. Peter said that about the Apostle Paul's writings. But my appeal, simply, is let's not make it more complicated than it really is. We're going to live in this age. And Revelation, as we go on through this, we're going to see it over and over again. We're going to live in this age. We're going to live in this age alongside of wicked people. And wicked regimes. We're going to live in this age. And the Bible says this age is an evil age. There's never going to be a point in time, according to those passages of Scripture, where this age is going to be characterized by godliness. It it is, the Bible says, a present evil age. And it says, don't be conformed to this age. Does this mean that God has failed? No. Does this mean we should lose hope? No. What are we to do in the midst of all of this? Exactly what Revelation tells us over and over again. Overcome! overcome. What is our hope as Christians? Our hope as Christians is not being secretly raptured out so that we miss the tribulation. Our hope as Christians is the resurrection from the dead. As you look at the scriptures and the word hope is used, you see it connected with the resurrection over and over again. Our hope is that Christ is going to return bodily and the dead will be raised. We're going to be ushered into the new age and all of the wrongs will be made right. All of the sin will be put away and we'll live with the Lord in glory for all eternity. And very simply speaking, the wheat and the weeds are going to be in the field until the harvest. But Jesus said to go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel because God's elect are out there. And so we have work to do in this age while we wait for the age to come. We have work to do. Proclaiming the gospel, teaching people to observe all things that Christ has commanded. And what does he say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the Greek word eon there. I am with you to the end of the age. And at that time he will come back. And that type of work will be done. And then we enter a new age of glorious work for God for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. But we'll get to that in Revelation. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had today. I pray that you've been glorified in it. Thank you for your teaching in Scripture. Pray that you'll help us to wrap our minds around it. And to just, uh, no matter where we we come out in regard to to this uh, teaching, I pray that we will... Not live in a defeatist sense, believing that nothing that we do can make any impact for your glory in this world. But at the same time, let us live in a realistic sense of not despairing when we look around us at at this world and we see evil in the world. And uh, let us us look at it realistically and let's fight the good fight. Father, help us with this. Uh, Bless us. We pray, bless the time that we have a fellowship and and food together. Uh, May we comfort one another with these words of the return of Christ and the common hope that we have in Christ's coming. We pray in his name. Amen. Praise God, God from, God from.